Hello, and welcome to Sober, Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. This is a podcast hosted by Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve as a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. My name is Cindy Brzezinski, Director of Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, and today we have the first of a two-part series to discuss the topic of harm reduction related to substance use. Our panel includes Dr. Elizabeth Salisbury-Afshar, an addiction medicine physician with UW-Madison, Police Chief Brian Cheney from Monona Police Department, and Amanda DeLeon and Ryan Gorman from Community Medical Services in Milwaukee. Welcome and thank you all for making the time to discuss this important topic today. Um, let's just start with some introductions. Let's go around. Um, whoever would like to start can start. Just tell me about yourselves, including your professional background and current role. I'll go ahead and start. Uh, my name is Brian Cheney. I'm the police chief for the city of Monona. Uh, Monona, who, for those of you who may not be familiar, uh, we're a small city, uh, quite literally surrounded by the second largest city in the state. So we're surrounded by Madison, one of Madison's uh, suburbs. Uh, my previous job was working uh, at the Madison Police Department, where I started my law enforcement career and spent just about 20 20 years there at Madison before um, becoming chief here in Monona in 2021. Great. Thank you and welcome. Um, I'll go next. Uh, Ryan Gorman. I am a clinic manager for two clinics uh, in southeastern Wisconsin uh, that um, provide medication for opioid use disorder uh, with community medical services. So one in Pewaukee, one in South Milwaukee, um, a clinical substance use counselor, um, and um, it's just a, a background in harm reduction. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you're here. Thank you. Go next. Um, my name is Amanda DeLeon. I work with Community Medical Services as their Community Programs and Integration Manager. Um, been in this role for about five years and been in the field for over 15. Awesome. Thank you for being here. And hi, my name is Elizabeth Salisbury-Afshar. I um, am an addiction medicine, family medicine, and, and public health physician. I work at UW-Madison in the hospital and in a clinic um, providing addiction treatment services. Um, I also uh, am the medical director of harm reduction services with um, the Division of Public Health for the state of Wisconsin. Uh, I've lived here for about three years and prior to that worked in Chicago for quite a while and in Baltimore have a background in delivering healthcare services for folks experiencing homelessness um, as well as in, in Baltimore and Chicago public health departments. Thanks for having me. Great, and thank you. We're glad to have you here. And so for those listeners um, who might not be as familiar, um, could someone say a little bit about what harm reduction is? And uh, feel free to jump in if you'd like to add anything. Uh, I would say uh, the like 30,000 foot view uh, of harm reduction, as I understand it, uh, is a public health approach. Um, I believe the uh, Harm Reduction Coalition, the National Harm Reduction Coalition, uses the phrase uh, accepts for better or worse that substance use is part of um, our everyday life. Uh, it always has been, always will be. Um, and harm reduction seeks to 
just reduce the harms, the risks um, associated with uh, substance use, um, particularly um, harms related to the loss of life, um, but also um, communicable disease um, and just general harms and risks associated with that. Anything else to add? Yeah, this is Elizabeth. Um, I think Ryan did a great job and I would agree with everything he said. And, um, you know, I, the thing I sometimes like to acknowledge when we have these conversations is that in a lot of spaces, the term harm reduction was kind of um, like if you worked in treatment or if you worked in prevention, it was like harm reduction was that thing that happened over there. Um, and it was almost like a bad word in some circles. And I think partly because overdose death rates have increased so much, um, partly because I think we've largely acknowledged that a lot of what we're doing just isn't reaching people and isn't working well enough. Um, we're starting to see at all levels, federal level, state level, and many places, local level, this sort of uh, embrace of an acknowledgement that we probably need to to reconsider um, how harm reduction fits into the broader spectrum of services. And if it's okay, I'll actually just read, I love this definition from Harm Reduction International. Um, and so they say that harm reduction refers to policies, programs, and practices that aim to minimize the negative health, social and legal impacts associated with drug use, drug policies, and drug laws. It's grounded in justice and human rights. It focuses on positive change and on working with people without judgment, coercion, discrimination, or requiring that people stop drugs as a precondition of support. And on this note, I, you know, sometimes I work with people and like, well, I can't support harm reduction because I support abstinence. And I always just call out abstinence is part of harm reduction. It is not an either or. Um, abstinence can help people reduce the harms of drugs. Um, but there are lots of other things that we can do to support people as well. And so it's it's not an either or, it's an all and. And really the, the key, the central goal is we want to meet people where they are. We want to engage them in whatever allows them to be healthier, you know, in that moment. And that might look different for different people at different times. See, that's a much better answer. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you all. Um, and, I, and I like what was said about um, ab abstinence being a part of harm reduction. Um, do you have anything to expand on that? I find that interesting. And I, I think um, there's others out there that may not have put abstinence under the category of harm reduction previously. It, it yeah it exists on the same spectrum i think like one of the one of the main tenets of harm reduction is meeting people where they are um and i think if that person is uh in a in a place in their life where they feel that that is the best choice for them um in that moment then it is absolutely a practice of harm reduction um and i do i i agree completely with dr elizabeth that um the two seemingly exist uh as as opposites and i think it's always kind of been seen that way um in certain circles but um it's certainly not i i'm a person who practices abstinence uh in my personal life um and i'm absolutely a harm reductionist and i see the the choices that i've made as far as my recovery goes as being um choices related to harm reduction for me so yeah so then if you could Describe some examples of harm reduction approaches to address substance use disorders. This is Amanda. So I would say, you know, one of the one of the examples that I like to use of, as a harm reduction approach is MOUD. So that's medications for opioid use disorder. Um, another staple of harm reduction is um, 
like clean syringes, safe use supply, you know, items to give to individuals. Again, going alongside what the other folks have said, um, meeting people where they're at and keeping them safe while they are using um, is always, you know, something that we try to do. Um, because if they're not safe and alive, we can't help them. We can't treat them. Um, so uh, the common one that we utilize is the MOUD, is Medications for Opioid Use Disorder. This is Elizabeth, and, and I would just agree with everything Amanda said. And, um, you know, I think often when we talk about harm reduction, we, we talk about it as very specific interventions, and that's 100% accurate, right? So we have specific interventions that are highly effective, so they can include things like giving folks naloxone so they could resuscitate an overdose, or medications for opioid use disorder, a form of treatment that Amanda just described. It might also um, be, you know, for folks who are injecting drugs and, and not ready or interested in stopping, making sure they have access to syringes um, or other clean equipment to reduce their risk of HIV. Um, it can also be policies and, and laws, right? So we're in the state of Wisconsin, um, where we really don't have a good Samaritan law that protects people who survive overdose. So it could be, you know, improving our good Samaritan law so that someone's in a, when someone's experiencing an overdose, um, people feel comfortable and safe calling, both that the person calling 911 doesn't end up with charges, but also that the person surviving an overdose doesn't end up with charges. Um, and then I would even take it a few steps further back to say that there's sort of the practice of harm reduction, which are some of the things we've talked about. And then there's the philosophy of harm reduction, which is something that I think at least for any of us who work in this space, um, these are things that we should be applying every day. Um, and this includes, you know, really... Uh, treating our patients or clients or, you know, again, kind of depending on what setting you're in, colleagues with respect and dignity. Um, and I think so often, you know, I want to uh, say, acknowledge that I know that people are not always treated well in the healthcare system. Um, and so if, I think when I give talks to clinicians about harm reduction, I'm like, the first thing we have to do is just treat people well, um, which seems so basic right? But sadly, it doesn't always happen. We need to listen to what people are telling us. We need to believe their symptoms that they're describing. And we need to treat them um, in humane ways with the services that we have access to. And so I think it is, um, harm reduction to me is, is all of the above. It's the specific services, but it's also this philosophy that I see you, I hear you, I respect you. Um, and I'm going to offer what I can in terms of, you know, whatever supports I have. And I'm going to respect your autonomy as a human and as an adult and that you might sometimes make choices that make me worried, right? Like I'm a physician. So I worry when I see people doing things that could cause harm to themselves, but I'm going to offer you this kind of smorgasbord of, of options. And I'm going to respect that you're making the best choice for you in that moment um, and continue to walk with you and support you to the extent that I, that I am able. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are great. Yeah. I would also add part of that human dignity piece. Um, that's, uh, I, you know, I, I think I, I've, I've fallen into the, the trap in my past too, um, of, of seeing even my own experience as something less than, um, an experience of somebody else. And I think, um, anything that we can do as individuals, as people who work in this space, but also just people who encounter people who use drugs every day, um, to practice anything that reduces the stigma associated with it. Um, one of the easiest ways that's that's for some reason one of the more controversial sometimes uh, is just using person first language 
um, referring to people before their their disorder if they have a diagnosis, um, like for example, people who use drugs, right? Um, not somebody, not an addict, not a junkie, not any of those phrases or terms that have been used in the past and are still used pretty often. Um, but instead, kind of flipping it, flipping it around and seeing the person uh, first. Um, so. So what I'm hearing is there's, there's many different components of harm reduction, including the philosophy, how you're interacting with people, and then the methods themselves. And which harm reduction approaches are available in Wisconsin? I'll weigh in here just in terms of, of law enforcement and something that's probably seen um, mostly from first responders and law enforcement, um, especially as it relates to sort of our court diversion um, and restorative justice programming that, you know, several of, of us agencies in Wisconsin uh, are active participants in, not all, unfortunately, um, but many of us are. Um, and, and that is exactly that, um, you know, working on ways to divert folks um, from the criminal justice system that, as we all know, um, has its whole host of challenges and barriers and um, really um, can can have, you know, detrimental impacts on, on folks' lives as if, if you get involved in the system. Um, and as one of the gatekeepers of the system, uh, the frontline police officers, you know, we have a duty to acknowledge that we we, we have a role and, and we have an impact on people's lives as it relates to, to that topic. And so, um, you know, having on board district attorneys sort of lead the charge along with uh, several uh, local law enforcement, um, we're able to uh, hopefully uh, help in this endeavor um, of uh, reducing the amount of folks um, who are in the criminal justice programming and hopefully address uh, some of the harm concerns that, that we're talking about uh, this very day. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for adding that. Um, so what I'm hearing is, and, and what I'm seeing is that harm reduction can cut across many, many different areas in society, you know, to the point of, you know, you have a philosophy, you've got the different methods, um, you've got it in different areas. It almost feels like it, it could become a movement in a sense, a way to engage with people um, on a more um, stru structural level. Is that understanding correct? I would, this is Elizabeth, I would, I would say yes, I think that it is, um, you know, sometimes in healthcare science, we talk about it as patient centered care. Um, and so I think it is, it is all of that that was just described. I think, you know, the other thing I do want to acknowledge, especially um, for our friends in more rural communities is that some of the things that we're talking about are really not as available, depending on where you are in the state. Um, and so, you know, our cities tend to have access to, to the medication treatments that Amanda mentioned earlier. Folks tend to have access to certain services, at least in many parts of the state. Um, even some of the diversion programs or drug courts, again, more often available in, in, our, in our cities or our bigger towns. Um, but where we see less access is, is you go into more rural parts of the state. We, we, you know, a lot of times folks don't have access to syringes or they might have to drive really long distances to gain access to medication treatments. Um, and so I think a lot of times the, the answer to the original question of, of where, where are things available in Wisconsin is that it's, or which approaches are available in Wisconsin, I think it's variable depending on where you live. Um, and especially in our more rural areas, right, folks don't 
often have access to public transportation or have easy ways to get there. Um, and so I think there's some really exciting um, attempts to, you know, whether it's it's uh, mobile methadone um, maintenance treatment, so actually putting the methadone treatment on, on a van and to be able to get into more rural areas, or whether it's um, naloxone distribution by mail or in vending machines. I think the, we see lots of creativity in the state right now, but the, the truth is that access doesn't look the same everywhere and folks in rural areas tend to have less access to some of these really important and evidence-based services that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that, um, Elizabeth, because, and it's weird calling you Elizabeth because we know you as Dr. Salisbury, but, um, I, you know, because my initial gut reaction to that response to that was to say, oh, we have all of those resources available, but it, it does, it does depend on where you live. You know, I just came from a conference and I'm hearing how um, all of the deficits that Schwano has, and I, I never, never even, you know, dawned on me. And according to like numbers, they have just as many, you know, um, non-fatal overdoses and sometimes fatal overdoses as we are seeing here in the city in Milwaukee. So um, yeah, so I guess, that just leads us to, you know, how can we bring that stuff more in our rural areas versus inner city? You know, we always look at where we are and we see that there's a need and there is a need. There's not enough treatment options, but we forget about the people that may only have one treatment option that they have to travel maybe two hours for. So, yeah. Absolutely. And you bring up a good question. So how do we get those resources in areas where they're lacking resources? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know if any of you have any thoughts about that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a <laughs> it's it's not an answer that like feels great, but it, it does start with, I think, conversations like this. Um, it starts um, by bringing these conversations to um the places where they might not be received very well um such as um you know uh, conferences that are more geared towards abstinence-based recovery or um, department of justice stuff or, or places where um, traditionally maybe these conversations just aren't being had uh, very often um and then also like on on my end is is um just in my personal experience is reframing it from um, from the the typical services, I say typical services again, spoiled in the city with with harm reduction services, but um, services that I'm used to that I kind of take for granted, like syringe access, um, MOUD, um, things like that, and reframing it really like to what we were talking about a little bit earlier of um, of uh, destigmatizing um, um, harm reduction focused therapy, um, things like that that are. Um, more of a, a long-term slow burn kind of a solution, um, but that is how we get there, you know? This is Elizabeth again. I think the only thing I'd add is that um, in the midst of, right, all of the, the sadness and, and the death and the challenges that we're seeing, we are also seeing a lot of funds um, coming from the federal level, coming um, through the state. And, and typically in Wisconsin, this goes down to the county 
county level, um, whether it's county behavioral health specifically for things like treatment or um, whether it's, you know, sort of settlement dollars coming to the county boards. And so I think, you know, if, if you're curious about what's happening in your community, I would encourage everybody to, to reach out to your county behavioral health office or your county board and say, I just am curious, like, how are you spending settlement funds or how are we spending, you know, the SAMHSA money, which is more sort of earmarked for treatment? Or do we have syringe services in this community? if you're not sure. Um, you know, and so I, I do, again, I think that there's a lot of movement right now. And it's also important that we all kind of know what's going on. And I, I remind uh, folks, and, you know, it's, it's hard to do it, but it's really important that, you know, a lot of times county boards right now are, are having open forums to talk about how they're going to spend these dollars. And so these are meetings that typically, you know, we as, as citizens can, can attend and can understand what's going on and can make recommendations. And folks who have lived experience, um, you know, need to have a, a seat at the table and have voice. And so um, I would encourage folks to look into all of that in your own communities. Uh, the last thing I want to say on this note is just that um, our colleagues in Bad River uh, in, in northern Wisconsin um, have a partnership with an organization called Next Distro, and they um, are trying to help fill some of the gap, um, specifically as it relates to some very specific harm reduction services like naloxone and fentanyl test strips. And the website is Next Next, like the word Next Distro dot org backslash Wisconsin. And um, if folks find themselves in a more rural community that doesn't have access to these these services, you can request them online and they can be mailed to you. Um, and so that's another great resource. And again, kind of going back to, you know, we're just in this space right now where there's a lot of innovation because we know there's gaps, we know there's need, and people are being really creative and trying to figure out how to how to help meet some of that need. Great, thank you. So I'd like to ask now, um, why is harm reduction important? I know this is a, a big question and it's an important question. And please, you know, if please jump in. Why is harm reduction important? This is Brian. I, I'll just say briefly, you know, one of the things that I've uh, I learned as a young officer when I started my career and I was a leader in law enforcement here in Dane County, um, I preached this uh, it, that's the only church reference I'll make, by the way, but I preach this all the time um, is that, you know, the the few moments that we have with uh, members of the public, people who we serve, um, maybe the most impactful in their lives, potentially. And so, you know, oftentimes we get called um, to, to persons in crisis, right? When folks are in very vulnerable, very, um, you know, frightening situations, and they're calling uh, either a need as a need for help, or we get called to, um, you know, a little nod to our firefighters here, but we get called to put out, put out a fire, right? Um, and so those interactions that you have with that person or persons are so valuable, and how they feel and how you make them feel during those interactions can be, you know, lifelong lasting. Um, and so I really try to impress, um, you know, sort of reminding officers uh, to remember the human aspect of this job and remember that, you know, all persons that we encounter have a story, have a background, um, and there are valid reasons as to why they are in certain predicaments. And um, just walking with empathy and understanding and 
sort of treating persons um, with that respect will go a very long way. Um, yeah, I I would add. Um, I mean, it's it's a human dignity thing. I think uh, maybe more maybe more than anything. Um, but I mean, we do obviously find ourselves in the midst of uh, an overdose epidemic, right? And we're losing, um, you know, tens of thousands of lives every year. I think now is. Um, now, now is it's just it's crucially important that we have these conversations, um, that we look closer at harm reduction um, as an option. Um, yeah, but I think just for me, it's it's a it's a human dignity thing. Um, it is uh, is uh, treating each person like a person who makes the choices that impact their own lives, and my agenda for them is irrelevant. Um, so, yeah. This is Elizabeth. I did just again agree with everything said so far. And um, I apologize for folks who have heard me give a talk on this because you've probably heard this analogy a hundred times. But um, one of my colleagues always talks about harm reduction is uh, like a buffet, you know, and, and I think um, choice is like very central to an American ideal, right? And so I often will say, you know, if, if we were at a, at a meeting or at a lunch and everybody was going to get a ham and cheese sandwich, there would be a lot of people who would be unhappy for any number of reasons. They don't like bread. They don't like cheese. They, you know, can't eat meat. They, you know, don't eat pork, whatever the list goes on. Um, and so really when we think about harm reduction, it's really about engaging folks and saying like, um, you know, we see you. Um we're listening to you. And there are all of these different services that, that might be helpful. Um, are you interested in hearing about any of them? Are you interested in engaging in any of them? And I think the other thing we have to remind ourselves, and I apologize because I don't have the exact most recent data pulled up, but it's it's like a couple percent, less than 5% of people in the United States that have an addiction actually get formal treatment. Um, and so it means there's over 95% of people out there, right, who could be at risk for having some some pretty significant health and, and other, right, like um, outcomes. Uh, so it could be interpersonal work, legal, like these other negative outcomes that can be associated with substance use who aren't engaging in any kind of care. And I think, I mean, that that one reflects a lot on the treatment system. We need to expand it. It needs to look different. It needs to be more patient-centered. But I think it's also when you look at the data, when, when they, we do these national surveys of like, hey, you know, um, it looks like you meet criteria for addiction or, you know, when we look at the symptoms, um, have you tried to engage in treatment? When people say no, they then ask, well, why not? The vast majority of people say, I don't think I need it. Right. And so I think we're also um, and I'm not saying that treatment is the only thing people need, because I don't believe that either. I think it's really or at least not treatment as is typically defined. I think we really need to acknowledge that there are a lot of folks who are at risk for a lot of negative consequences related to substance use. And so harm reduction is really kind of just about meeting people where they are, figuring out what services make sense. Um, in that moment, and then supporting them in those decisions. And I, I said earlier, you know, I've had the really like a tremendous opportunity to work with folks sometimes over the course of many years. Um, and again, I, I think I mentioned that I mostly work with folks experiencing homelessness, especially in my work in Chicago. And what I've come to learn is that sometimes like people's goals might be the same, but what's within reach from one even month to the next, right, is often dependent on all these external factors um, that they can't control and I can't control. And so really when I think about harm reduction, it's just super practical. It's like, all right, I hear you. Like you can't go to residential right now because you have a pet or you live in a tent. And if you leave your tent, 
your tent's going to be gone when you get out. And that's like all of your worldly belongings, right? Like how do we troubleshoot that? And the list goes on. There are lots and lots of examples, but I think, you know, it's not a treatment or harm reduction or abstinence or harm reduction. It's all. And it's here, are all the options that we know about here, are all the things we have, how can we support you? And the reality is the vast majority of people who might be eligible for services are not getting them at all. And so how do we make that more desirable? And I think that, you know, having this sort of um, person centered lens is, is really is harm reduction, like they're the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and so what I'm hearing is that, you know, that's one of the, the main components of what makes it important is right, it's it's support, it's person centeredness, um, it's meeting people where they at are at, and it saves lives. Now I'm I'm gonna so some people say that harm reduction is enabling. Um and for those that say that, how would you respond to that if someone were to to come to you and say that? Uh, Amanda's probably cringing. Um, I think enabling like the, the view that something like harm reduction could be enabling or is enabling, uh, really the, the handicap in that argument is that you are assuming that, uh, the thing that you think you're enabling is, is necessarily all bad or all negative. Um, so are you enabling, uh, a series of choices to continue sure maybe um the only way that you can see that as a as an overall like a negative thing is if you see the the choice as a negative choice um and i think it's for for me it's important to see that like my experience is not everybody's experience right so the the decisions the choices the situations that i found myself in throughout my life um might have impacted me negatively in a lot of ways there were a lot of benefits that i drew uh, from those things at different parts of my lives uh, parts of my life things that got me through periods of time um and to give somebody a a, a black and white choice of either stop uh or go to jail or stop, or we're cutting you out of our life or, you know, any of these like black and white choices that I think all of us are to some extent conditioned to, to think like that. Um, it, it really, it leaves people with you're, you're putting that, you're putting that decision back on them of how worth it is this to me, right? This, this thing that I've been doing, whether it's drugs or whatever, uh, that has been, you know, for better or worse, it's been helping in some aspect of my life. Otherwise there, there really is no reason to keep doing it. Um, that to, to, to take that decision away from that or to take that option away from them, um, is sometimes and often is creating a, a situation that is far, far worse, um, for them, at least in that like snippet in their lives. Um, and then there's like the, the kind of whatever answer of like, you're enabling somebody to continue living, right. Uh, especially in the, the environment that we find ourselves in now with the overdose crisis, um, is if Narcan, if overdose reversal is harm reduction, then what you are enabling is, is the continuation of that person's life, right. Which is it's, I, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who would find that a negative thing. This is Elizabeth. I just, I really want to say, I, I appreciate that you asked this question because I think it comes up a lot. Um, and depending on sort of someone's path, it, it's probably a term that they've heard a lot. Um, 
or it can be at least. And I think, um, you know, it, there's often this concern um, when we're talking about specific services, for example. So if we're talking about naloxone distribution or syringe services, that if we give people tools, they're going to use more drugs, for example, or they're going to use in a less safe way. We actually had this argument for folks who remember it in the 90s, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, like we can't give out condoms because if we give out condoms and everybody's just going to be having more and more sex. So like we need to scare people with AIDS, for example. Um, you know, so we see this similarly in the substance use space. And I, I do just want to say what we've seen is that when we offer these specific services that I'm describing, so things like naloxone or syringes, actually, not only do we not find that people use in more risky ways, not only do we not find that people use dr more drugs, um, but actually what we find is that people are more likely to engage in a variety of health and wellness related services. Um, and so there are some great resources on the CDC website for those two specifically. Um, I think, you know, though, when we think about like actual context of the word, and now I'm going to sort of step into more of a treatment space. And so when I, when I worked at Healthcare for the Homeless in Chicago, I worked with this amazing their recovery coach, um, who himself had uh, a long history of um, cocaine use and, and had sort of very much come up in 12 step abstinence based recovery. And like, we had long conversations, because a lot of the sort of philosophy of harm reduction was hard for him, because it wasn't his path. Um, and so a lot of times he'd be like, Elizabeth, like, I think we just need to discharge this person, because they're not like, they're not working the program, you know, sort of in his words, they're not working the program. They're not doing the things that we're suggesting. Um, and I'd say, okay, so like, let's think through that. Like what's going to happen? It, like they're still taking the medication that we're prescribing, but maybe they're continuing to use some other substances or maybe they're, you know, not hundred percent abstinent from opioids, whatever it may be. Like, what do we think is going to happen if we discharge them? And he'd be like, well, things will get worse. And I'd be like, okay, what does that look like? And we'd run through the list of all the things that could get worse. And I'd be like, okay. And he'd be like, but then maybe, right. Maybe things would get bad enough that maybe then they'd want to come back. And I'd be like, maybe, or like maybe even worse things happen, right. Maybe they end up incarcerated and we know incarceration significantly increases the risk that someone over overdoses. We know that incarceration doesn't really help people to move forward. Right? It's not helping them get jobs. It's not helping them get housing. It's not help. It's not really a treatment. It's not a therapeutic environment, right? So there are lots of negatives. Um, but if we keep people engaged and if we let people know that we're with them, um, you know, that, that, uh, that, that, you know, I think in, in my mind, that is harm reduction. That is the philosophy of harm reduction. And is it possible that people keep coming while they're still using? Yes. And like, that's what I want. Like, I want people to remain engaged. And we specifically in the medications for opioid use disorder literature, we know that as long as people are engaging in treatment, in some treatment, right? Like, even if they're continuing to use, even if there's other stuff going on in their lives, they're still less likely to die. And, and I want to be clear, death isn't the only outcome I care about. I care about that total wellness. But I really think, you know, for other health conditions, we would never consider discharging people because their chronic condition that they're seeking help for isn't perfectly managed, right? When, when other health conditions aren't, aren't managed optimally, we see people more, not less. Um, we don't discharge them from care. We acknowledge that there's a lot of stuff going on. So, so I think, you know, this conversation of enabling, I actually just Googled it, enabling and, and on Wikipedia, it said it can be a positive or a negative. In the negative sense, it describes um, dysfunctional behavior approaches that um, continue basically because of offering, you know, uh, support. But then there's also the positive term enabling, which is similar to empowerment. 
and describes patterns of interaction that allow individuals to develop and grow. And so I guess it depends on what we mean by when we say enabling, because I love the positive definition. So in this term, yeah. So harm reduction is enabling people. It's enabling people with and empowering people with information, with tools, with choices, right? And it's also really focused on engagement. Um, and I think especially when I work with families, sometimes families say like, look, I can't continue to engage with my loved one right now because of all of this other negative impact. And, and I fully want to acknowledge, I know there are times when families might feel they need to say that. Um, but I think that, you know, especially for those of us are, who are working environments where for our profession, we're working with folks. Um, like, I think in those cases, it's even more important that we show up, right? We know isolation is 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 so detrimental to people's uh, be, like overall well-being and wellness. And so, so I think, yeah, it, it is enabling, especially if we view enabling as empowerment. Um, we're enabling people with choices, we're giving people support, we're walking with them, um, and we're enabling them to, to make better choices for them, even if they might be making not the choice we would maybe hope for them, but they're making the choice that makes sense for them in the moment. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the conversation that we need to be having as well, like that we are enabling the positive, we're enabling hope, we're enabling health and wellness, a second chance, life. Um, what what practices can police departments, first responders, and healthcare systems implement in an effort to reduce harm? Well, it's Brian Cheney again. So I, I you know, we are we are a spoke on on the multi-spoke wheel. <laughs> um, and so it's important that we first and police departments acknowledge that we play a role um to reduce harm. Um, and I'll tell you, and I'll be quite frank with you, you know, to the previous question about um you know, what others may think about, um, you know, harm reduction. Uh, we're not all aligned in law enforcement, especially, you know, amongst those of us who are, you know, leaders uh, in law enforcement, at least in this state. Um, we vary on a multiple <laughs> variety of issues where we don't always see uh, eye to eye. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that we're consistent in that we're, our goal is to um, sort of improve the quality of life uh, for those in which we serve. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I've mentioned maybe some of the more uh, obvious uh, and in-your-face uh, level attempts uh, at this to be, for example, the diversion programming that I spoke on earlier. Um, but there's also an education piece. Um, and I think when done right, when involved in, you know, involving the professionals, involving our public health uh, service providers, um, the edu educational piece uh, is is a huge component for the sheer fact that law enforcement is at the table and having conversations and very candid conversations about their role, about um, how others view our role um, in this endeavor, I think is very important. Um, but it's also, you know, important to talk about sort of the cultural climate within the police department and 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 how that's important and, and in my role as chief and, and chiefs in general uh, they should set the tone uh, with respect to uh, you know what it means to uh, have an impact and what it what their job is uh, as it relates to reducing harm um, and so you know, getting ahead of it by uh, training and, and bringing persons in. Uh, those of you in, in this virtual room and on this podcast are professionals and can come into police departments and talk about uh, what this topic means. Uh, give 
uh, stories, examples, experiences that you know that that we can relate to from what we're seeing on the street and uh, provide us better guidance. You know, we we got to let go of our egos. Some of us in law enforcement, we're 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 good at some things. We're not good at everything. Um, and so we, it's okay for us to rely on uh, others in the room um, who have way more acronyms behind their name or lived experiences um, that can help guide us um, and 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 making sort of correct decisions uh, in our careers uh, and, and in our encounters uh, in order to reduce harm. So um, I think that it's important to, to do what we're doing now. And, and I appreciate that, that uh, law enforcement is invited to uh, discuss this topic in a variety of circles such as this, um, but that we're not afraid to own up to our faults and, and say we need more help in this regard, in this endeavor. But I'll, I'll kind of put it back on the community too. You know, we spent three, four years plus talking about, um, you know, things law enforcement does in the service, in the service law enforcement provides, you know, we're one of the few, um, 24 hour, 365 street level, uh, service providers, public service providers. And I'll be frank, um, I, I, I don't think it's appropriate for law enforcement to be the only and direct responder to certain calls. Uh, we're the default agency uh, in a lot of cases. And so to our earlier discussion about uh, limited resources or lack of availability of certain resources, uh, we're even seeing that in urban environments where, you know, there's a potential for outreach teams, there's a potential for clinicians, there's, there's a potential for social workers, et cetera, to respond to certain calls uh, and and keep the limitedly trained, I think I made that word up, um, trained um, law enforcement officers to uh, help address the uh, the matter. Um, and so I would push this back on the community to ask more questions and talk about, you know, what other programming uh, can we fund? What other agencies uh, can provide uh, the service? You know, here in, in Madison and Dane County, uh, I'll give a little shout out to my 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 former colleagues in Madison. Uh, the fire department here uh, here in Madison has a very uh, pr great program as it relates to uh, mental health crisis response um, called the CARES program. It's a community alternative response emergency services program in which they pair community paramedics with uh, mental health uh, professionals, and they're literally out on, in, in cars and they actively respond. And we've heard, I, I know many of you and many people listening have heard of these models uh, working uh, before in other parts of the country. Um, I think what Madison does well is that that is a direct uh, referral and response from uh, an, uh, an emergency line or the 911 center. And law enforcement is not involved in any way uh, unless absolutely needed. And so we're seeing programs like that start to butt up in the uh, sort of the mental health crisis uh, community. I think we need to think in terms of this realm as well and, and how we can uh, provide uh, those types of services to, to uh, people we serve as well. Hey, this is Amanda. I just want to like ditto everything that Chief Brian had said and um, just highlight that it does take people in his position, you know, our chiefs of, of fire and police to get on board with this. And, you know, the main thing I, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked this question is treating the folks, you know, the people who are using drugs as people, right? These are people. 
And, you know, we've been at the forefront and, you know, people don't want us to open up treatment centers. It's not in our neighborhood. And the way that they just down talk folks who are using is just so heartbreaking. And we had our fire chief at one of these hearings who just, oof, we were all scared of him after that. But like the way that he brought human, like the human back to people. And he's like, do you guys realize what you guys are saying? You know, you want these people to die. These are people, right? And so I think like um, what we have done as a society is taking that out, right? We took out, you know, we call them an addict, but this addict is a person, right? A person who needs help, whatever it may be. And um, we have programs here too in, in the city of Milwaukee that we've helped develop. And ours is called Mori, very similar to what Chief Brian was talking about with the CARES program for um, for Madison Fire. But they respond within 24 hours of a non-fatal overdose. And that's two um, Milwaukee firefighter paramedics along with the peer support. So they respond. They bring the people to treatment, whatever it means to them, right? If the guy tells them, I'm just hungry, they'll bring them a cheeseburger and, and a soda and a french fry, right? Because you're developing that relationship. And, you know, and it's, we have to bring back, like, bring back the human part to these folks who are out here using, right? And um, to me, that is key. The other thing I want to say is, you know, the continued education, right, all across the board from, you know, our first responders, which is police and fire, even in our healthcare systems, right, our emergency rooms. And, you know, when you think of people and they're saying things, okay, what's wrong with you today, right? Have How many patients have you seen today? Do you need to take a break? Do you need to go, you know, scream it out? Do you need to go shake it out, right? Because I think sometimes people just you know, they become so overwhelmed with this influx of everything, right? Because this opioid crisis was going, was coming along with our COVID, with, with the COVID pandemic as well. So like, it, it was just a lot on all of our, our healthcare providers. And I include fire and police on that. And so it's taking that step back, looking at why are you acting this way? Why are you feeling this way? And then just bringing yourself back, like checking yourself in, right? Like, What's wrong with you, Amanda? Why, why are you acting like this? Why are you thinking these things? Why are you saying these things? You know, and so just, again, I can't stress enough. We got to treat these folks as people, right? It takes a lot of courage to ask for help, okay? I am the type of person who does everything, wants to do everything, wants to have my hand in all kinds of cookie jars and help and help and help and help. But it's hard for me to ask for help. Now, imagine if I, I had some sort of um, substance misuse on top of that, I definitely probably wouldn't want to ask for help, you know? So again, if somebody is coming to you and wants help, treat them with the utmost respect and dignity and say, what can I do for you today? Absolutely. So Chief Brian, in a previous conversation, you had described a principle to me uh, quote, just because you can doesn't mean you should, end quote. Can you tell us what that means and how you apply it in your day-to-day and why this type of approach is important? Yeah, you know, you give us in law enforcement a lot of power and authority. Um, and I, I think it's just an understanding and respect for that authority and understanding that there are multiple ways to uh, help with the solve a problem and there are multiple ways to help people. And not all of that means that uh, it should result in uh, what in my mind sometimes can be the most hard decision, but is also the easiest decision is a ticket or an arrest. Um, that should be sort of last resort. And my philosophy 
sort of in leadership and in, in law enforcement has always been sort of that what's important now, what is the ultimate goal? Um, and just because you can make that arrest, just because you can issue the citation, just because you you can detain somebody, doesn't mean that you should. Is that the right thing to do in that situation for that particular person? Um, and so I, how do you apply that? Again, policy, um, you know, that that can really help inform and shape decisions. But you also need to hire the right people for the job. Uh, I'm going to borrow a quote I use often. I borrow a lot of quotes because they're really good and it's from really smart people. But um, I like to think that we hire character and we train skill. Um, I cannot teach you, my personal opinion, how to be empathetic. I cannot teach you how to care for, for somebody in need. I cannot sort of explain to you without going into great detail um, what it feels like to experience certain traumatic events or to, you know, uh, have experience with um, drug use or somebody in your life who has that experience or, or loss. Um, that is something that you you come to me with, with life's experience that is important to me. And frankly, I value education. I think education is 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 important um, in helping shape an individual in this profession. But, but really, uh, I give heavy value to life's experiences. Um, and so um, it's that win philosophy. It's a win for everyone. Win, that acronym for what's important now, um, is really what I what I'm meaning by that, the answer to that question. So um, I, I think that that in terms of what law enforcement can do better, I think we we need to do a better job of acknowledging that we have a, a broad, um, broad discretion. There are only a, a handful of laws in place on the books as I speak in which we are limited in our discretion. The vast majority of of um, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis involves a great amount of discretion for, for officers. And so I think we need to, to use that discretion and think about the best possible outcome for the individual involved. I really like that. And I think that's really important. Um, so thank you for elaborating on that. And what challenges come up um, when trying to apply harm reduction principles in the work that you all do each day? Um, I, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank, thanks for sharing all that, Chief Brian. That was wonderful. Um, and, and earlier you had mentioned, um, that sometimes people in law enforcement are at odds one with one another, um, about harm reduction or, or however you, you frame that, um, inside police stations. It, it's the same, in my experience in therapy, I'm sure Elizabeth will say it's it's similar in in healthcare, but um, we're not always, and even in harm like harm reduction service providers and and frontline workers, that they're not always in agreement with how best to go about with uh, to go about something. Um, but I think um, I think uh, one of the things that we can do right is like understand. This is just my experience. I'm not going to say we. What I can do um, in those spaces, in the spaces that I find myself in, um, is understand that, like, just like the people that we're trying to bring services to, not everybody is at the same place at the same time. 
um, at that moment in their lives, right? And and so that that same thing goes for therapists and counselors um, that not they're not always in that same place. Um, so I think uh, I think one of the things that that one of the challenges, right, is is either assuming everybody is on the same page um, and then getting aggravated uh, when they don't um, come up with the same solution or the same um, course of action that you do. Um, yeah. And I, and I, that is a, that's a common challenge that, that I run into. Um, but if I come from a place of, of understanding that, uh, that, that not everybody's in the same place at the same time, um, it's a lot easier to, to overcome that challenge and have a, have a conversation in an easier way. Great. Thank you. Anyone else on what challenges come up when trying to apply harm reduction principles in the work that you all do each day? I think for the biggest challenge was getting everyone on board with, um, with naloxone, right? I feel like it was like, I mean, in free, we, if we rewind, we're still being challenged with giving people out clean syringes, right? It's still, you know, kept as the, the dirty little secret that it happened. So, you know, um, with naloxone, at least, you know, we got more people on board with that. I wish we could have that same movement happen with clean syringes because more people would have access to that. But I think it's just the challenge is just like what both Chief and Ryan both said is the lack of education. So, you know, if people aren't educated, they're going to create their own narrative. So I, I do think it's our role as public servants to be out here educating all the folks in the community about um, the different harm reduction items that are available, about MOUD, about the different programs that our first responders that are doing, you know, because people think like, well, what are they doing for me? No, there's a lot going on. You just don't know about it. Let me tell you about it, right? So just having an open mind and um, and just educating folks, because our, our, you know, I always look at it as my goal is not to change their mind. My goal is to plant the seed. You know, if I can plant a seed and give them an idea of what something is and <clears throat> how we can help these folks in the community, then they'll go home, they'll do their own research, right? Because they're not going to trust somebody who's trying to sell them, you know, not sell them, but, you know, get them to take naloxone or allow their loved one to get into some form of treatment, especially MOUD, so stigmatized, but it's, you know, they're going to go home with that information. They're going to ask their friends. So the more that we can get out there and provide that education. And again, I always look at it as planting the seed. If I can plant a seed everywhere, eventually if it, it's watered enough, it'll grow. Um, this is Elizabeth and I, I really appreciate everyone's comments. And I think, you know, for me, um, a lot of what comes to mind is just that it, it when we talk about harm reduction, whether it's philosophy or interventions or engagement, um, like I always kind of have this visual of like walking against a current, you know, or walking up a hill or a mountain, like whatever you want to think about, because I, I think the reality is like we have so many decades of stigma and drug policy and sort of media and rhetoric that have like pushed these messages at us, right? That like all drug use is bad and people who use drugs are bad. And, and so I think a lot of what harm reduction is, is, is starting to tear some of that down. Um, I think we've also heard for a long time, right? Like the best approach when someone has an addiction is to, to like be punitive and to penalize them. And if it's not working, you penalize them more. Um, and so a lot of what we're talking about is like a massive, like 
culture shift and culture shift is hard. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I, when I meet with folks, especially folks who've been in the field for a long time, or maybe folks who, you know, identify as being in recovery and have been in recovery for a long time, like this is truly a kind of a, a new language, a new way of, of viewing the situation. And I really appreciate Chief Brian being here and appreciate his perspective. But as he says, his perspective isn't everyone's, right? And similarly in healthcare, my perspective isn't everyone's. And I'm always cautious not to lay blame on people who have different perspectives because the reality is our society and the systems and structures that we work in heavily influence the way that we see these challenges. And if all that we've been taught up to this point is that the right approach is a punitive one, to now talk about one that focuses on support and engagement and meeting people where they are, right, it, it, it feels hard. Um, and so I think, you know, when I think about the, the struggles, and so it doesn't really matter so much exactly what we're talking about, whether it's naloxone or syringes or when to discharge someone from a program or, you know, um, some of the really tough decisions that the chief talked about, like to, when to arrest and things of that nature. Um, the reality is that what we're really talking about is, is a start of a culture shift. And, and that's just, it's always hard. So I think it's important for all of us to sort of acknowledge like, yeah, like the, this is the society we've, society we've come up in. Um, we have these often like belief systems because of, because of that society. And so thinking about it requires a level of like open-mindedness um, and also a level of like making, all, we should all be kind of pausing and saying like, where did these ideas come from? Are they based in evidence? Are they based in science? Are they based in ideology? Um, and I think trying to continue to have open minds about the, the concept that there could be and probably are better ways because the reality is we're not doing so hot right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about that, that culture shift um, related to stigma. Um, so people with substance use disorders are often stigmatized. How does stigma show up related to harm reduction? And what impact does stigma have on harm reduction? I mean, this could really be, <laughs> this really could be a, a podcast episode all by itself, probably. Um, so I'll just, I'd like, I, I went to urgent care last night, right? And I have a, um, an infection in my arm. It is, I'm a, I'm a person who used to inject drugs. So it's in a, it's in a, a part of my arm that, uh, that it's, it's awfully close to, to where somebody might inject drugs. Um, the response that I got just based on where it was on my body, my age, I have tattoos, like who knows? Um, the response I got from the healthcare professionals in this urgent care was a rare experience for me. Um, they were compassionate. They didn't ask a bunch of uncomfortable questions. Um, the uncomfortable questions that they did ask were, were on, like needed questions. They were important questions. Um, it hasn't always been my experience, right? Um, sometimes you are met with questions that are truly like for a diagnosis are probably pretty irrelevant. Um, but they, they, they bring with it, a. a a, a heavy feeling of um, I made this choice and this is, this is the consequence of that choice. Right. And what that did for me in the past, no longer the case really. Um, but it did occur to me, right. With this infection in my arm, it occurred to me for a brief moment, like, do I want to go through that right now? Do I want to um, go to urgent care and have to explain that this is actually from a bug bite that was in my elbow. Right. Uh, do I want to do that? Or do I want to just like, see if it goes away? 
on its own. Um, and that's just fresh in my memory because of yesterday, but like the experiences that I've had in healthcare um, with stigma attached to whether it's, you know, something like uh, an injection site um, that's gone south or something like that, like the the stigma that you can be met with if you're a person who uses drugs or a person um, who uses substances in general um, can can put you in a position where you you just no longer feel safe telling the truth, right? I'm, I'm going to be less likely coming to this place uh, for help if I feel like every time I come here, um, I'm put through the ringer or asked a million questions that are irrelevant. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that that part of stigma, at least, um, in my experience has been really detrimental and it's taken me a number of years, uh, to, to really just be comfortable going and just saying like, I, a, I, I either don't care what they think anymore, uh, which took a long time to come to that, or, um, it's, it's too important to ignore. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that uh, personal experience of yours. Stigma can be really, really harmful and, and pose lots of barriers. I think the only thing I would add is that, uh, you know, if we think really about the roots of the harm reduction movement as a whole, I mean, really the need for harm reduction comes from the amount of, of stigma that exists, you know, really broadly in society, in um, in all of these different sort of areas that we've been talking about today. Um, and so I almost think of harm reduction as a response to the, the weight of the stigma that our society and all of the structures within our society have against people who use substances. Um, and so in its best form, right, like harm reduction is, is really trying to dismantle that stigma and all the systems and policies and structures that perpetuate the stigma um, against people who use substances. Absolutely. And what do you believe is needed to eliminate stigma, both for use of harm reduction methods and related to people with substance use disorders in general? How do we eliminate that? I have a fresh mind, right? To go back to the drawing board, kind of just being open-minded, right? Um, I think just, again, this word stigma, to me, it's just, it's. I always go back to the lack of education. And when it's something that they view as negative, which I love Elizabeth's, you know, coin here of looking at something um, in a positive, more in a positive manner when it came to enabling versus, um, versus a negative, you know, just shining more, looking, looking at that more, right. Um, in a positive light, we, we don't say the same things for people. You don't see people getting changed for not using sunscreen, right. We use sunscreen to prevent us from getting skin, from getting skin cancer, but yet nobody is being shamed. Nobody's being shamed now for using condoms, you know, to not get STIs. So why are we doing the same thing to folk, to, to humans, to folks that are out here using substances, um, and I just think it's, again, you know, education and being out there um, and having more advocates out there. And, you know, everyone talks and talks and talks, but like we need to move to now to that to that part of implementing this change. And otherwise, we're going to continue to see more folks die. Um, and I think that's where we all struggle across the board is we are all very passionate. We're all trying to do things, but we need those key players there at the table, like the chief being here and the chiefs and the people that can make those things happen, you know, um, 
but again, education, education, and education. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm of two minds um, when it comes to people sharing their lived experience. I think if it's um, if it's entirely if people are relying on people sharing their lived experience to change other people's minds, I think it it verges into some pretty ugly um, some pretty ugly territory. However, uh, I do think listening to people um, with living right current experience or lived experience um, leaps and bounds um, to dismantling stigma, especially in certain um, certain circles, demographics, um, where people feel like, uh, substance use, uh, drug use doesn't touch their community, doesn't touch their neighborhood, doesn't touch their family, hearing people, um, talk about their experience, right. And, and growing up in the suburbs or a rural community or, uh, a reservation, um, hearing those experiences from people's, um, mouths, um, it, it makes it difficult, I think, my experience is it, it it makes people it makes it difficult to to see them as an other to see them as somebody who well, that's not our experience here right um and and it it just it shifts right i think it shifts people's perspective a little bit which is a uh it just goes a, a long way to dismantling stigma uh yeah this is elizabeth i i appreciate everything that amanda and ryan said and um some of what Ryan just said made me think, you know, about kind of this idea of shifting the narrative. Um, so offering alternatives to the messages that we've probably all been hearing our entire lives. And whether that narrative is, you know, sort of someone with lived experience sharing, you know, um, sharing their story. Uh, but also, you know, really, I think, calling to task. And I used the example of Good Samaritan earlier, and I'll use it again. Um, you know, in the state of Wisconsin right now, if someone survives an overdose, they can get charged and go to jail. Um, and I like, I've been doing some trainings with the, the Madison Fire Department, and I was talking to some of the the EMTs about, well, what usually happens after you after you reverse an overdose? And they said, well, people usually say they weren't using anything. And my first thought was, well, of course, because they don't want to get in trouble, right? Like, and so we create these environments that really perpetuate, um, perpetuate stigma, because we're, again, saying, like, if you have this health, ex like this negative health experience of having an overdose, that the, again, sort of, you know, the appropriate consequence in the eyes of the law would be that you would go to jail, um, right. And the, the only thing or the, the main thing that the person has done in this instance is, is used a substance and, and had a negative event. They, you know, presumably weren't hurting anyone else, weren't harming anything. Um, and so I think we also have to start to look at the policies um, around sort of drug use in our country and in our state. Say, like, is this the best way? Um, and, you know, jails are really expensive and they are not treatment. And so the fact that we continue to pour resources into incarcerating people for something like a substance use disorder, when we know that that's not if, if effective, again, in quotations, treatment for, for substance use. So I think it's, it's definitely at the individual level that we need to be working and, and really um, 
listening and hearing people's stories and thinking about the biases we have. Um, but we also need to be looking at the systems around us and what are the laws say and which ones can we change, which ones should we change um, to be able to provide a, a more comprehensive sort of supportive system for people to be able to step forward and, and ask for services and ask for help. A multi-leveled multi approach. So if people are interested in learning more about harm reduction or how to access harm reduction methods, where can they go to find out this information? I think there's some great websites, um, kind of depending on what folks are looking for. But um, I mentioned the Next Distro website earlier. They have a bunch of handouts and information. Um, Harm Reduction Coalition is another national organization that has some great information. Um, I would just plug that the state of Wisconsin held their first ever harm reduction conference this year in 2023. Um, I would hope and assume that there will be another one in 2024, but that's a great sort of local convening. Um, I think those are some of the some of the ones that that immediately come to mind for me, and and maybe Ryan and Amanda have other other resources as well. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. I would. I would echo that. I think. Um, I think uh, websites are always good. Uh, harm reduction. What I liked about what I like about National Harm Reduction Coalition uh, is everything is super accessible. There's not. Um, all their information, they have PDFs you can download and print out, you can hand them out, you can give them to friends, your family. Um, it's it's not like, it's not uh, muddied with jargon or anything like that. It's very, very accessible to people. It's very easy to digest. Um, so I usually point people in that direction. Um, yeah, we're next Stros. Wonderful. If you're on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Um, there's all kinds of local harm reduction organizations, alliances, coalitions, uh, unions that um, put out pretty consistent content. Um, and uh, you can kind of stay on top of, of what's going on with them locally, um, which then might, might uh, inform what's going on with you locally, if there's not something more localized to you. All right, great. Thank you all so much for your time. Um, how can people reach you if they have any questions or would like to find out more? Well, folks can, this is Amanda. Um, you guys can reach me anyway. You guys can email me amanda.deleon, D-E-L-E-O-N, at cmsgiveshope.com. Um, or you can just call or text me 414-510-2573. And mine is uh, Ryan Gorman, ryan.gorman, G-O-R-M-A-N, at cmsgiveshope.com. And uh, mine is Salisbury, S-A-L-I-S-B-U-R-Y, AFS, A-F-S, at wisc.edu. Um, although I, I do have to make the disclaimer that I cannot give medical advice over email um, and nothing personal in nature, like treatment related, et cetera, should, should go to that, to that email address. I would, yeah, I would say the same for us. Yeah. So this is just for information about harm reduction. Um, Thank you all so much again. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you all today. Um, and also a big thank you to our listeners. And I hope everyone has a nice day.